Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, Highland. It's good to see you here today, and if you're with us online, we're glad to have you with us. i got to be honest with you that I spent about the last 15 minutes holding my sleeping son, and um, that grace is more like, I got, I got nothing left. Um, we'll see if there's a word from God, though. We've been going through this series called Lost in Translation, and it's about... I got to tell you why it's important that my son was sleeping on me. My second son, his name is Micah, when he was born, he had terrible tummy trouble. Found, turns out he was allergic to dairy, but we didn't know it. It wasn't just his dairy, it was if his mom ate dairy. Horrible pain all the time, cried incessantly. The only person that could hold him was Natalie. Um, I, even if I held him, he just, he, it was just pain. And I got to hold my son through church. And he was sleeping. And the reason Deacon exists is because Natalie and I are here. That's hard to explain, but I'm not going to unpack it because I haven't thought it through and I'll say something dumb. But I had within me, through the course of the worship, an overwhelming sense of gratitude for what God has done in my life. We began uh, kind of engaging in a spiritual discipline of mindfulness over this series. Just a fill-in-the-bank question that you could find on Facebook and Instagram. You fill it out yourself, and then the next day we would post some of those. And I hope you've been following that, because I've been kind of surprised and overwhelmed by the, the number of responses that we've had, people engaging in this discipline. And I want to share with you just some of those that we saw this week. One of the prompts was... Sometimes I feel lonely in a group when the group doesn't acknowledge my joining in. Because last week we talked about friendship and what does that mean. And, and, and sometimes the truth is, is that uh, you don't always feel like you belong. The second one of those was my experiences are dismissed because we are in different life stages. And, and at first I thought that was somebody young saying, nobody listens to me because they don't think I have anything to say. But then I realized, I don't know who originally said this, is it may be somebody that's old that says, well, I kind of feel like people think the world's passed me by, but I still have wisdom to offer. Another one of those prompts this week was, blank is an important quality for those in my inner circle. What does it mean for me to have a close friend? This person said, seeing the world beyond their own perspective. And then this other person shared the ability to be lighthearted at the right times and serious at the right times. We all, we need qualities of people. We need the character of the people around us to support us and to benefit us as we form those deep friends. 
We're going to do this exercise for one more week, and if you haven't had a chance to kind of follow that, you just follow our Highland Church Facebook or Instagram page, and you'll see the options and stories or in your feed to kind of play along. But even if you don't post it, engage in that discipline of mindfulness. And there's a lot of points in your day where you can probably pause and for five or ten minutes, just how would you answer that question? Next week, and if you're in college, man, I am thrilled that you are here this morning. Next week, there's a couple things. If you missed Jeff's announcement, we're going to go back to two services, acapella at 9, class at 10, instrumental at 11. Um, And we want you to be a part of that and to engage in that, especially if you've been in that kind of summer drought where you haven't really been able to focus on God because life's been coming at you. and, And now school started, it's time to get back into that rhythm. We're going to begin a new series on Philippians called Every. And if you know that word every in Philippians, it's kind of important. But we're going to figure out why beginning next week. So come back and check that out. Um, But I want us to think now as we're kind of closing out this series on Lost in Translation. One of the differences between our world and the world of the New Testament and the world of the ancient Near East is that we live in a highly individualistic culture while most of Scripture was written in a highly communal culture where the emphasis of identity for the first century in the ancient Near East was on us, the we, the tribe, the nation, the family. Whereas for us, it's mostly on I. And you can see this in a couple of different ways. One of the ways I think is interesting, and this is a change that some of you that are about my age or older know for certain, but some of you younger may not realize it yet. The words in our, the music that we sing to worship God, the pronoun that was most common about 50 years ago was we or us, and now it's I and me. In fact, if you think about the hymnody that we sing, the songs that we sing, a lot of it now is expressing how I feel about God or what I would like to see God to do. But if as we sing some of those old hymns, what you notice is it's not so much about you. It's about what God has done in the world. It teaches us about the power and the majesty of God. It makes a commitment, and when that commitment is made, it's the church's commitment rather than my commitment. There's nothing right or wrong about that transition. I don't have any beef with anybody that's writing songs right now or writing songs then. I'm just saying it's evidence of the change that's happening. Here's another example. If you were to watch a romantic comedy, one of those great rom-coms about boy meets girl, but there's a problem that they're having, you can see this on the Hallmark Channel nonstop at Christmas. It's just one rom-com right after another. And if you watch it, they are exactly the same. Somebody goes back to their old hometown for some silly reason, for some silly moment, and they meet somebody there, and that somebody there is who they knew in high school, but there's a problem because he's a dork, or he's insensitive, or she is now uppity because she went to the city, or she, you know, it's always simple problems, right? She has too many dogs. I mean, come on. But in the course of the time, they get to know each other, and they realize the value of one another. They fall in love. They find someone to adopt all those dogs out to. No. And then they live happily ever after. There's another example which is very telling about our individualistic culture. Boy meets girl. They're interested in one another. In fact, they want to fall in love, but they can't because her family thinks he's no good. Because 
He's a Montague and she's a Capulet because a million different reasons. In an American culture, the power of that romance, it's not love yet. They're 13 years old. They have no idea what they're doing. The power of that romance, it's not love yet. It's hormones. Let's be honest. The power of that romance makes that person say, I will forsake my family and everything around me for this chance with you which is really romantic. I mean, like, that's awesome, right? And all of us want somebody that would choose us over their family or over their, uh, their, their, where they grew up or they chose to leave one side or, you know, she was like a kind of a nerdy schoolgirl and he was this hip greaser and she gave all that up so that she could come and live with him, which is bizarre if you think about it. But that's the way, the way Americans think about love. In most of the world... The idea that you would abandon your family or your caste or your place for the sake of romance is so utterly ridiculous that doesn't even come into the equation. You wouldn't even try. The fact that you would get married for romance at all is kind of silly to them. It's just one of the differences that we see in this kind of changing world of individualism and communal thought. So today we're going to look at the idea of patronage. And if you don't know what that idea is, um, it's, it's the way that we understand money and resources. It's, it's when somebody helps somebody else out. Okay, and so this is how it's expressed in my life. This actually happened to me, and I, and I, I lived in the tension of this. I was a um, sophomore going on junior in college, and I had wrecked my car at an internship in Houston because some parts of Houston don't have lights hanging over the front. They just have them on the sides, and I barreled right through a red light, got sideswiped. It was totally my fault, destroyed my car. And on the way home, I found a, a Pontiac Grand Prix that was like 12 years old, um, for like $1,000, and I thought, okay, I'm set. I'm just going to buy this car. I'm good to go. That car got me almost back to Abilene, like 300 miles before it started having problems. And then immediately, like, it sat in the parking lot of the apartment that I lived in for like five months because I couldn't ever get it started again. Well, I ran into this guy, and he was about my age, and he knew stuff about cars. And I said, hey, my car doesn't work. Could you look at my car? And he said, sure. So he comes over, and he says, yep, it's your alternator. Let me change your alternator and your battery. And I said, oh, that sounds expensive. Now, mind you, I didn't have a lot of money. When I was a sophomore in college. And, uh, and so he says, don't worry about it. Let me see what I can do. I can find you a rebuilt one. And he was connected. He knew all of the, the people that worked on cars here in town. He was friends with the folks at like, um, where he bought used uh, car equipment, um, parts. And so the next day I come back and there's this rebuilt alternator sitting on my kitchen table. And there was a note that said, I'll come back tomorrow and put this in. And so my friend comes back tomorrow and he, and he puts it in. He gets me a new battery. I'm like, okay, how much is this charge? He says, don't worry about it. Don't, I, I just want to do this to help. Wow, man, I can't believe this. Thank you. This is amazing. That car ran for about five more weeks and then it broke again. <laughs> it wasn't the alternator that time. Alternator was good. And so I go back and I said, I'm really sorry to ask you this, but this, this Pontiac, just, the granddam, it just won't go anywhere. He's like, yeah, that's kind of a terrible car. <laughs> okay. And then he goes and he uses his connections and he connects me to a guy that I, I, I can't remember my friend's name. And this, you'll see why at the end of the story, but uh, this guy, this name Basil, and he was like, uh, auto mechanic here in town, and he, he took two cars that one had been rear-ended, one had been front-ended. He cut them in half and glued them together and sold it. 
It was a 1997 Geo Prism. And I look at this car and I think, you know what? I'm never gonna do in this car, have a really successful date. <laughs> but, um, boy, that might have turned out really sour. That's not what I meant. I meant like going on a date. Oh man. I, I warned you, the grace was spent. Um, anyway, so long story short, he helps me buy the car. I'm just moving on. Long story short, he helps me build the, buy the car. It's really expensive. It was like five grand at the time, but he helps me get a good deal on it. And Basil, he does a lot of things to help me out because this friend is a, a friend of Basil's. And, and then I have this car and I drive that car for like the next 15 years and put like hundreds of thousands of miles on it. That car was amazing. It was exactly what I needed and I had no idea. And I, I felt so obligated to my friend. And I wanted to like help him out. I wanted to do something back. I wanted to, but I never really saw him again. But that guy, that guy was my patron. And I guarantee you if he had ever called me, in fact, if he called me now and said, I'm stuck, can you help me out? I would, I would not hesitate to help him for what he did for me. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Holy Father, to be gathered in this place for the moments of grace and mercy that you play out in our lives, for the love that you pour into our lives, for the spirit that moves in us and among us and through us and does your work, we give you praise. And Father, in this moment, on this Sunday, where we come with a lot of distractions, a lot of fears, a lot of worries, Center us in your word. Remind us the story that's bigger than every other story. The truth that is more real than any other truth. Let your love drive out all fear. To that end, I pour that you pray through me, pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak your truth and love to these your people. And it's together that the church says, Amen. So there's some there's a reality. In the first century, most people are poor as we would define it. In fact, most people are living in a sub-subsistence level, like they don't get enough food for them and their family on most days. Uh, some so sociologists think that 20% of the people in the Roman Empire were on a level of at or just above starving most of the time. In fact, all of their daily work provided them with just enough food to to feed them for that day. Give us this day our daily bread. Wasn't just kind of a like, hey, here's the bare minimum that I'm kind of hoping for, God. That was the goal for most of the people in, in the first century in this time. And the reality was the way that you survived is by relying on your family, your extended family, and your neighbors. So that if you got a little bit extra, if you got egg lucky in your, your fishing business or you got lucky with a good grain of crop that year, you ended up sharing it with those that were not so lucky that year or not so lucky that week because you knew that around the corner was a bad week for your fishing business or a bad week for your crops and you're going to need help. And so if you had just a little bit more, you almost always had to share it with somebody else, otherwise you would starve. The net effect was is that you couldn't really get out of poverty by saving or reinvesting or putting a little more effort into your business because you were always just trying to keep level 
so that you could have, you and your family, you and your, your, your community could survive. One sociologist calls it the slouching mud of poverty. I don't know if you've ever walked through that deep mud where it just pulls at your shoes. It pulls at your legs. There's that vacuum underneath. You can't really get out of it because of the, the weight of the community around you. Jesus even reflects this. In, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus tells this, this parable about a neighbor who uh, needs some bread in the middle of the night, and he doesn't have any bread, and he knocks on the door of his neighbor, and his neighbor won't answer the door. And, and it's because he needs, he's in need. His neighbor won't give him the bread. And for me, that's not very shocking. If somebody knocks on my door at about midnight, you've got to be pretty important to me for me to even open that door. Right? Like, that's not something I'm going to do in an individualistic culture because I'm not bound to my neighbors the way that this guy is bound to his. But the shock of that parable in the first century is that somebody wouldn't give their neighbor bread at that time. And so Jesus says, keep knocking, keep asking. Eventually that neighbor is going to remember their duty. Because people had to help each other out. But how did that work when there's like across social status, somebody that was middle class in the first century or somebody that was really poor versus somebody else that had a whole lot of money. Well, what that turns into is a patron because there's strong social stratification in the first century in the ancient Near East. If you were born poor, it was pretty likely that you were going to die poor. If you were born rich, it was pretty likely that you were going to die rich. And it was pretty likely that if you had kids or grandkids, they would grow up in the same social stratification as you are. That's very different than our world where if you work hard, you get a good education, um, you get lucky, then you can kind of make something of yourself. That really wasn't possible in Jesus' era. You were just going to kind of stay where you are. And so society saw the obligation of those that had to share with those who didn't. Because you couldn't really move up or down. It wasn't because you were smart or clever or hardworking. It's just because you were just straight lucky to be born to the parents you were born to. And so you can imagine when catastrophe hits. Like, you can imagine with me a person that grew up in Corinth or a person that grew up in Philippi or a person that grew up in Rome. It doesn't matter because it was all kind of the same. And their father was a baker, so they, they are a baker. And then one day they have the catastrophe that their bakery burns down. And they lose the infrastructure that, that has been massed over generations to accumulate to allow them to bake bread every day. And they know that in a few weeks they're going to starve because they don't have any means of making money and they don't have any means of doing anything else. And so this person, we'll just, um, we'll call him Apollos, has no choices and no options but to go to somebody that's very wealthy who happened to be born into a family that owned, say, like a copper mine or owned all of the fields on the outskirts of town and, and got a kind of a, a, a tax or a levy from the people that worked those fields. They would go to their door and they would just kind of stand at their door in the morning until that person let them in and then they'd have an audience and he'd explain his situation. He'd say, my bakery burnt down. I can't do anything about it. Could you help me, please? And the rich person could decide in that moment, yes, I'll help you, or no, I won't. If they decided to help them, then they became the patron. And the next day or within the next few days, somebody would show up at that baker's house to help him rebuild his ovens. 
and, or help him to put a new roof on. Or somebody would come with money, with a loan, to help him pay to get those things to happen. It was just the way it works. What happened from that point forward was that baker, in the first part of his day, would show up at his patron's house to just see if the patron needed anything. And if he didn't, he'd go on with his day. If he did, he would attend to that task first. That baker might bake extra loaves and give those loaves every morning to his patron. It was an act of gratitude. And that patron had a, had a household. That patron had a family. It wasn't his biological family. It was the people that he had helped and the people that he had looked out for, the people that were kind of under his umbrella. And they kind of formed this conglomerate of people that were able to help each other out. Because if you had the same patron, you were on the same side. And the worst response you could do in that moment was to be ungrateful for what your patron did. To not show up in the morning to see if they needed anything. To not provide bread for those that were in your patron's household that might have needed it. Seneca, who's a Greek philosopher, he notes, murderers, tyrants, thieves, adulterers, robbers, sacrilegious men, (coughs) and traitors, there will always be. But worse that all of these is the crime of ingratitude. And this is the tricky line that Paul has to walk to the Philippian church and the Corinthian church. And when he writes the book of Philippi, we're going to see this in a couple of weeks, he's in prison. And they provided to him. They offered him money. They sent Epaphroditus with money to take care of him. Because in the first century, if you're in prison, nobody's going to give you food. Unless you have somebody on the outside taking care of you, you're going to starve. But the Philippian church hears that he's in prison, and they send somebody to help. And as he writes the letter back, one of the things that they're going to see is he has to thank them for their gift. But he has to tell them, and this is tricky, it's not patronage. I'm not your baker. But rather, how I see that is that you gave, through me, a gift to God. And this is tricky enough that when, in, in Corinth, and 2 Corinthians, Paul rejects the gifts. Paul won't accept money from the Corinthian church because he doesn't want any shadow of a doubt that he might be confused that what they're doing is patronage. And the big reason for that is because in Corinthians, there's all of these factions, some that love Paul, some that love Apollos, still others that love James, some that claim Jesus. And if he accepts patronage from one of those groups, then he loses his place as the father of the church and instead becomes like the baker. This happens even in the modern world in Arab states. A poor couple was trying to get married and they made so little money, it would take them years to save enough money for the wedding. And so her grandmother offered to help. And that seemed like a wonderful opportunity, a a gift that comes out of the blue so that they can get married and move on with their life. But they rejected the offer because the grandmother didn't want them to travel, but they wanted to go see the world. And they knew if they accepted the gift, they would have to listen to her grandmother. In Arabic, there's a saying, loaded down with beauty, that the gift you receive is beautiful, but there's strings attached. And for, for us as, as Americans, 
If you were to show up at a baby shower or a wedding shower or a birthday and you wanted to give a gift, even if it was an extravagant gift, in your heart, the way you give that gift is to say, this is for you and I don't want anything to do with it. There is an alternator that appeared on my kitchen table one morning. It was a gift to me. And then my friend didn't want anything. He didn't want anything back. He wanted that to be just truly a gift with no strings attached. But sometimes we see in Scripture, gifts should have strings attached. We see that as an obligation. But in the world Jesus lived in, it was a bond. It meant that you could rely on someone. Helping someone made you good, and it made them loyal. And this is what Paul means when he says, no one would die for a righteous person, but for a good person, someone might dare to die. That verse has confused me, I think, my entire life. It might have confused you until you understand it in light of patronage. That for a righteous person, someone that does the right things, you see them pray, you see them being um, faithful to other people, that's, that's a great person, but you're probably not going to die for that one. But for a good person, for someone that is a patron, that someone that creates that umbrella of safety for others, you might dare to die for them. I think in my mind, I always understood like good being less than righteous. And so why would somebody dare to die for a good person when a righteous person you wouldn't dare? It's because we have to understand what good means. It means that you are a patron. That that text in Romans continues, but Jesus would die for the ungodly. You might dare to die for that person that saved your family's life, provided for you when you were in desperate need. But Jesus would do it for everyone. And this is what makes the stories like the Good Samaritan and James' comments about only helping those who would help you uh, such a, strike such a powerful chord in the first century. Everyone would help family or a neighbor or a friend, but why would you help a stranger? It doesn't even make sense. And this is true even in the modern world. There's a story I found. It was fascinating. There was a, a woman that was living in China, and she was stepping off a bus, and she fell, and she broke her ankle. And she laid on the street while people passed her by. They ignored her. They didn't help her. And this is actually kind of common that it happens in rural China quite often. Until someone came along and saw her, saw her in her distress, and picked her up and took her off of the street so that she could be safe, and then helped her to the hospital. The Chinese woman sued the Good Samaritan. Why would you do that? Someone that would help you, why in the world would you sue them? Well, in her mind, the only reason that Good Samaritan would help her is if they felt guilty about it, so that person must have been the one that pushed her off the bus. That's the only reason they would help. She won the court case. And that's why the gospel is so powerful in a, in a, in a communal mindset. Because I have us and we, and if you're not part of that, you're on your own. But Jesus' ministry and death on the cross demonstrates the radical expansion of who our people, who our family, who our friends really are. If you have the same patron, then you're on the same side. And we can chase this a little bit further if you think about the language of faith and the language that we inherit from the first century. 
Grace and faith are expressions of God's patronage with us. This is the language of relationship. And this is another on-ramp for understanding our salvation. Because this is what it means. It means that God became a patron for us. You came under God's umbrella of protection. You became some of God's people through Jesus Christ. By God sending his son. It's less because you're a dirty, rotten sinner in desperate need of saving, although that's true. It's because God has offered us a place and a way to be part of God's family. And if you reject this offer, then you aren't a part of God's house. And if you accept it, or if we accept it, we are. We get to choose. And we get to make this decision based on the character of God as revealed in Scripture. Best revealed by God sending His Son. So what God does is offer grace. The way you accept it is faith. And then you live out your life the way everyone who has a patron lives out their life. The first thing every morning when you wake, you ask the question, is there something that my patron needs me to do? Is there something that I've been called on to do? Is there someone in the patron's house that needs help? Is there some way that I can be a part of helping my patron complete their work? And this takes us to Acts chapter 4. The church is caring for each other, they're selling property, and they're uh, providing for each other. They are being patrons to those who need. That's how we need to understand that text. And they're fulfilling the promise of Deuteronomy chapter 15, that there would be no poor among them. And this is why, in the next chapter, Ananias and Sapphira's deceit is so terrible. It's not that they held back some of the money. It's not that they chose to be smaller patrons than they could have been. It's that they lied. They pretended to be a patron and reflected ingratitude for what God had done for them. Ultimately, what Jesus is doing in this world is to become the patron of the church. What Jesus says is, I'm going to do this big thing that you cannot do, that you have no way to achieve on your own. And what I ask is that you be grateful, that you appreciate what has happened, that you remember what has happened. And as you tell the story of your life to those you meet, you keep the one thing in mind what God has done for you. Will you please stand for a benediction? Highland, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift his face to shine upon you and give you peace.